Welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners, the podcast where we discuss the short story collection Dubliners by James Joyce. I'm your host, John Cofeder, and I'm joined here as always by my fellow host, Lachlan Coyne. Today we're going to be discussing the third story of the collection, Araby. Um, before we jump into the story itself, I wanted to briefly read out a quote Joyce wrote about the stories. My intention was to write a chapter of the moral history of my country, and I chose Dublin for the scene because that city seemed to me the centre of paralysis. I have tried to present it to the indifferent public under four of its aspects, childhood, adolescence, maturity, and public life. The stories are arranged in this order. Thanks for that, John. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting idea um, that Joyce had there in terms of the idea of breaking up the structure of the book into those kind of various different stages of adult life and, or I suppose personal life in general. Um, obviously we're at the third episode now, Araby, and um, this is probably the final chapter in the true childhood uh, section of the, the collection and you know I think I think definitely next week's or the next episode, Evelyn I think will certainly can be argued to be the, the, the beginning of the adolescence period. I suppose in, in terms of childhood, we can probably break it up into two distinct areas here, looking at both the historical, factual narrative around what it meant to be a child in Dublin at the time, Joyce's writing at the turn of the, the 20th century, and also then, I suppose, the idea of childhood as it's reflected throughout the other stories. So I think there, there's a number of other stories that, that also pick up the, the themes of childhood. Yeah, I suppose when we think about childhood in, in Dublin at the at the turn of the century, the early nineteen hundreds, um, you know, it's it's quite different from the childhood as as we experience it today. It, it would be, um, you know, much more compressed childhood. Children didn't have, you know, such such space to grow or such such a long period of time. They went and entered into the to the workforce quite early. Family life would have also been very different. You know, they would have very large families. Joyce himself was a uh, the eldest of ten surviving children in his family, so you know you can imagine that the the family dynamics at play would have been very different uh, versus you know uh, much smaller family sizes that we have nowadays. And I guess one of the reasons that that families had that parents had so many children was to do with you know it was kind of seen as an insurance policy for as you get older that your children would look after you, um, and hence the more children you have, you know they're better. Uh, opportunities you have for someone to look after you. Um, the other thing, of course, reason that so many people have so many children is that there was a high rate of infant mortality and childhood death. And uh, yeah, I was I was reading an article in researching this history of Irish childhood. It's a 2019 article by Dermot Ferreter in the Irish Times, and you know some of the stats he provides there are, are horrifying. You know, it's if I can read a brief quote from that article. Um, uh, in 1911, more than 2,000 infants under the age of two died from diarrheal in illnesses, and the same year, a fifth of the 72,000-odd deaths in Ireland were children under five. For every 1,000 babies born in 1916, 81 were dead before their first birthday. So, you know, massive rates of, of, of childhood um, mortality, um, and, you know, that kind of affected the entire family dynamic. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. 
And I mean, I think another uh, interesting aspect to that or, or a point to that, that that maybe we haven't touched on already is the different family structures that you see in the first three stories of the of the collection. Um, there's a, I, I, in the case of Araby, our, our protagonist is living with his aunt and uncle. And I, th I think similarly in uh, the first, uh, the sisters as well, the the protagonist of that story is, is living with uh, not his parents directly, but with uh, his aunt and uncle again. So I think I think that, that, that speaks to the prevalence of, I suppose, death and early mortality, both in childhood, but I suppose across an individual's life, the, the expectation that you not, that if your children fail to look after you in your old age, potentially you have uh, an aunt or uncle willing to either take care of you and looking after them specifically as well. When we think of the typical childhood in Ireland around this, this time, you know, we would be thinking of, you know, it is a quite a poor country still. Um, and in some senses, some of the characters in uh, the collection of Dubliners are more well off than, than the average Irish person at the time. You know, like we're, we're dealing largely with like a middle class or lower middle class characters. And so they are maybe spared from some of the worst excesses of poverty. But, you know, these concerns are, are still obviously evident. And, and as I said, Joyce himself was a uh, eldest of ten, so you know the the family structure would have been quite similar. Definitely, there, John. No, I think, and um, I think it's it's interesting as well to note. I mean, Dubliners is very much a, a collection rooted in the idea of Dublin as a city and, and and Dublin as a concept. And I suppose in Ireland at the time, we 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 talk about Ireland and Dublin nearly interchangeably. But I suppose it's 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 important to remember when when reading this that you are looking at a microcosm within the country of Ireland and the distinction, especially at that time, between rural and city life was vastly different. The uh, All of the children in these stories that we, I suppose, follow over the course of the stories are all in second level education, generally, as, as, as you allude to, kind of lower middle class, middle middle class um, lifestyles and getting formal education traditionally in the in the Jesuit style as, as Joyce himself would have received. Whereas I think if you, if you were to look at the, the country or, or more of rural Ireland, especially outside of any of the, the larger towns or villages, the, the experience, you know, it would it would have been working on the farm. And I suppose in, in, in those circumstances, the large families were really additional free labor to, to help manage the, 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 family plot, the family plot and the family uh, farmland, so. Yeah, I think, uh, and that distinction between um, rural and urban is even is even present in law. You know, the um, there was a an act in Ireland passed in eighteen ninety two, the Education Act, uh, which made um, attendance, uh, school attendance, compulsory from the ages of six to fourteen, but it only applied to urban districts. And so, you know, you can see even in law, you know, there was this consideration that yeah, children from rural areas are just going to be working on farms. Um, and yeah, to speak to that law itself, I think. Uh, it wasn't even really very well enforced. So even in, in, in urban areas, you know, children were supposed to be attending school to 14, but, you know, if you were a poor family, that realistically wasn't happening. No, absolutely not. And it's, um, I suppose it's, it's, it's interesting, you, you kind of do wonder what uh, Joyce's opinion on this matter would have been or, or, or was. And I think taking the stories here, the collection that we've, we've reviewed to date, I think it's, um, a large number of his, it's, 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 it's very telling that a large number of his protagonists are bookish children, heavily favoured, seemingly favoured by their by their mentors and their, their teachers. And 
with a voracious appetite for for reading themselves. Uh, you know, I, I think there's certainly we recall this from the the first few chapters, the sisters in an encounter, and I think it's uh, again we'll, we'll we'll bring it up later. It's a it's a topic I want to dive or touch on a little bit is the education and the the reading of our protagonist in uh, Arabic here. When we look at the, I mean, when we start looking at these stories in relation to the later stories in the collection, I mean, there's certain distinctions you can draw between uh, the childhood stories and later stories. The most uh, obvious one being that uh, all the childhood stories are written in a first par- first person narrative style. They're written with the eye as the as the narrator, whereas the later stories are written in a third person as a, with a third person narrative style. Um, and I think immediately that kind of draws a distinction or uh, emphasizes kind of the immediacy of these early stories that these children are uh, in some way more direct, more uh, in touch emotionally. There's more kind of uh yeah like an immediate emotional kind of experience there whereas the later stories are in some ways more distant that the the characters in those stories are a little bit um i would say like more distant from their emotions they're kind of living this in some ways sort of anodyne life that uh you know you don't get such a sense of in the earlier stories the earlier stories the characters seem much more um yeah just emotionally and physically connected to themselves Absolutely, there's there's definitely a cognitive dissonance between the the I suppose the protagonists of the, the the first few stories, but I mean I think as well it's it's interesting and, and again it's a topic we can dive into a little bit later on in is the transition in the narrative and the the, the actual just literary structures used in Arabi as compared with the, uh, the 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 first few stories. There's a couple of instances where you see that cognitive dissonance starting to to slip in and and you have more reported speech rather than an emulation of 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 of, of direct quotes from uh, from other characters but um you know i think that that gives you a good grounding at least in in kind of what the historic uh, aspect of childhood is and i think we've, we've probably touched on the relationships of those stories i don't know if there's anything else you want to cover off on this one john or we dive into the the plot summary no that sounds good let's let's jump into the story so sure so uh, i think as we've as we've mentioned already the the title of the story is Araby. And um, it's the third story of the collection. This is the story of a young boy who falls in love with uh, his friend's older sister. And in a desperate attempt to impress her, uh, he decides to take it upon himself to go to the local bazaar or uh, market, the Arab market, or Araby as it's uh, colloquially referenced in the story and in Dublin at the time. And essentially it's... it's uh, similar to the other stories, a, a small vignette just uh, examining a microcosmic experience of uh, this boy's journey to the market and the crushing reality that, that greets him when he when he arrives there. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a story, at least from my perspective, it's a, it's a story that, that, that resonates quite, quite heavily for me just with the, uh, the idea of the, the, the love's labours lost, I suppose, is uh, the cliched phrase you can use to describe this, the idea of kind of being filled with a, a near Arthurian or legendary drive to satisfy the, the needs of your, your paramour and uh, then the, the crushing reality and the realisation that as you grow up into and transition into adolescence that it, uh, the world isn't, isn't quite as uh, neat and tidy as the, the books that you've been reading and the, the stories and narratives you've been seeping yourself in um, allow for and I think that's... Um, again, speaks to the, the gritty realism of uh, 
Joyce's works in the first instance and also just the uh, the beauty and the fantastic structuring that uh, Joyce Joyce applies and uses in, uh, in in these stories. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, as you said, it is a story that resonates with a lot of people. I think it's it's probably one of the most anthologized of the collection. You know, I, I, I don't know if... Um, Probably people would point to the dead as being maybe the high point in the collection, but definitely Araby, when you have collections of short stories, you'll often appear there, perhaps because of its shorter length, people select it over the dead. And I think it's it's very resonant with a lot of people, you know, like Love's Davers Lost, as you mentioned, this kind of idea of striving for, yeah, for romantic reasons, but not really being kind of perplexed or beset by these kind of illusions, these kind of narratives from yeah, Arthurian legend, this idea of romance that doesn't quite fit with reality. I think it's this experience a lot of people have. Um, I also think that one of the other things about the story is that it's it's very, you know, it's a very compelling story. That we're kind of the first half of the story kind of sets up this this love uh, narrative, the boy's love for the for um, Mangan's sister. Um, but then the, once we're kind of aware of all the pieces in place, we as a as a reader are kind of aware that, you know. He's kind of this weird little kid who starts, you know, he's following her and then walking by her and stuff. And we realize that this isn't from her side. There's no serious affection there that, you know, she's she only talks to him for, you know, a politeness almost. Yeah. So we as a readers are aware that this character is kind of has these illusions in his head. But then we're kind of waiting for uh, the shoe to drop, so to speak. We're waiting for this realization on his point. And uh, it never, you know, it doesn't come at the start. We think, oh, maybe, you know, he won't be allowed to go to the market. You know, there's going to be some disaster there, but then he's allowed to go. And then we think, oh, maybe the father won't return home. And and then eventually he does get to the market. But at each stage, we're kind of like, oh, we're expecting disaster, but it doesn't come. And, and, and so we're kind of relieved because, oh, there's no disaster. But then it's also the stakes are raised with the next stage because, you know, it's been allowed to progress further. And I think that just makes it really compelling as a story. Absolutely, and I mean, I think it it would be remiss of us to uh, not to acknowledge or not to, to discuss the the ending of the story, which, to my mind at least, is is one of the most fantastically anticlimactic climactic endings to 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 a narrative, and and I think that's that's part of the the beauty of it, and you know, I I, I think we alluded to the the Arthurian references and the Arthurian legends. I you know I'm going to go out and limb here, and I'm going to say that this is actually. A parody, in some ways, of the prototypical kind of medieval Arthurian hero narrative. Um, I think Joyce is being a bit clever with us, and I think he is setting up this protagonist as a legendary hero of sorts with um, a mission. And I think the there's a reference to following his decision to go to the Araby market to collect uh, a prize or or some kind of uh, trinket for his his love. He um he describes or he imagines himself charging through the crowds of people, clutching this chalice close to his chest and and I um in 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 reading that passage and over and over again I I, I just can't help but feel that that's an intentional allusion to the the idea of the Holy Grail and the the Lady of the Lake in the the, the Arthurian myth making, and you know I, I I do wonder is the intention of this or is it Joyce's intention here to draw attention to the fallacy of this the. The idea of simultaneously, you know, children love these childhood legends. They love these ideas of these great knights taking on um, quests in order to satisfy or to help the uh, to, to 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 gain their maiden's affection 
ultimately, and that um, similar to, to the protagonist, we come to the grim realization that the challenges the heroes face, or the, the challenges that an individual will really face in real life as compared with those of the Arthurian legends are much more mundane and ultimately I think self, self-driven rather than, um, or self-imposed nearly, rather than external forces and in reality that's uh, it, it, it all just kind of comes to a grim end with uh, I suppose what I would consider to be the, the, the end of childhood and the, that transition into adolescence, that realisation that the the world isn't uh, structured around an Arthurian legend or structured around this, it's, it's, it's actually just a, a grim mundanity and uh, monotony that you are trapped in some ways by the restrictions of your family so he's not allowed to leave until his uncle has come home and given him the permission and given him the money to go out to the Arabi market and then ultimately when he gets to the market he's you know it's it's, it's already shutting down it's it's closing down the lights are going out and there's a young woman at the stall being cajoled I suppose is the word maybe by two young British men and uh, ultimately the three of them are looking at him kind of saying you know this is this is what true courtship looks like. This is the uh, this is the reality. You don't have this uh, experience yet. You don't you you're not going to win the, the affection of uh, Mangan's sister by uh, by bringing her this trinket. What women really like are actually these two crass kind of back and forth young gentlemen. The 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 uh, I don't I don't want to say it's a prototype or a a working model for the the two gallants of the uh, Lennon and Corley in the in the later story. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've touched on a lot of points there. The idea that the protagonist has these kind of uh, false ideas about what love is, um, informed by his reading and by kind of romantic Arthurian notions, um, but also maybe some certain religious notions, um, yeah, is, is central to the story. And I mean, it, it's also something that parallels a little bit what we saw in an encounter where you have this protagonist who is believing in these kind of fantasy notions in an encounter it's more of the wild west uh, maybe detective stories but similarly they reach for this kind of fantasy life and i mean in part it's a natural part of childhood you know we all fantasized about you know far off places and things when we were growing up but i think in in these cases as well it's all in the stories it's always um, uh, juxtaposed with how kind of barren or dull their their home life is um and i think if we look at um how joyce represents that in this story he does it through um the the depiction of the house itself so he's describing the house in um north north richmond street where um joyce himself actually once lived on that street but he describes it as a brown house and he he personifies the house uh, rather than the people living in it if i can maybe read out a quote uh where he uh, describes the house. The other houses of the street, conscious of decent lives within them, gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. So, yeah, you kind of see this idea of, the idea of what's like a kind of a decorous life, what's a kind of like restrained and uh, in some ways dull life. Um, and then yeah, l- later as well, he describes the, uh, how, the feeling of the, being inside the house and it's, um, Air, musty from having been long enclosed, hung in all the rooms, and the waste room behind the kitchen was littered with old, useless papers. So it's, yeah, it's, again, it's this kind of very dull, drab environment, especially for a child growing up, um, where, you know, they're living in this kind of respectable, but um, kind of 
full of like full of waste, full of detritus, full of stale air, and it's not a place where you can imagine a child like happily like living and 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 playing and so on. No, ab- ab- absolutely, and I mean I think it's. That probably uh, touches on, or, or, or that quote actually leads nicely into to one of my quotes on um, the books that the child finds um, in 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 that uh, littered old uh, room by the waste room behind the kitchen. Um, I think he references. I found a few paper covered books, the pages of which were curled and damp. The Abbot by Walter Scott, the Devout Communicant, and the Memoirs of a Doc. I like the last best because its leaves were yellow, and I think that 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 really teases up to this idea of the transition, first of all, um, as particularly the, the memoirs of a doc are um, the f- narratives of a, I believe it's a French petty thief who went on to become an informant for the gendarmerie, uh, whatever the original version of the gendarmerie were, and assisted them in, in developing new kind of techniques for identifying crime and went on then, I think, to end up with a paper mill of some kind. and wrote his memoirs at, at that stage. So there's this great fanciful notion, I think, in some of the literature that he's uh, referencing there, the Abbot as well, as a kind of essentially adventure story by uh, Sir Walter Scott. So these kind of stories are typical of the kind of adventure stories. And, and as you said, I suppose these parallel the detective stories and the, 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 the Indians and uh, cowboy stories that, that we've, that Joyce has referenced in the prior days. and. I suppose ultimately the I like the idea or the illusion Joyce has in describing these books as having um, paper firstly being paper covered so the idea that these are cheap disposable narratives rather than kind of especially at the time most books would have been heavy leather bound or hard backed at least um, weighty tomes that would have been turned over many times whereas obviously these ones have uh, yellowed curled pages the idea being that these are heavily thumbed heavily read volumes and i suppose ultimately i think it's there's a a sense of dramatic irony here that we as the reader probably recognize that this these books belong to the former occupant of the house the priest who had actually died in the drawing room itself and the idea of the we as the readers recognize that oh god the priest has kind of been sitting there living out his life through these books themselves rather than actually going out and living it and this is that paralysis and that stifling that, that Joyce I suppose teed up at the at the beginning of the, the collection of the sisters and, and spoke about in his discussions on, on Dubliners as a I suppose as a concept and a construct. And again the protagonist doesn't seem to recognise this. He's he's getting a kick out of the stories and think, oh this is great, I'm gonna go live this life rather than realising that the issue is that you will only ever, the limit of your interaction with this life is through these dusty yellow books while you sit in a decaying old back room. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty bleak uh, uh, description there, all right. Um, but yeah, pretty accurate as well. Um, yeah, I think as you mentioned, these books are, you know, they're something he's kind of inherited from the priest. I mean, again, we see kind of another parallel with the sisters there where the, the child is being formed by, in some ways, by a, a, an indirect, in this case, relationship with a, with a priest. Um, the priest himself is, is you know, is, is only briefly described in, in the story. Um, but uh, I think what's interesting is he's described as being a, a very charitable or a very generous priest. I can't remember the exact adjective Joyce uses here, but... Um, 
And the way the reason the, that the the child gives for this priest being so generous is that he left uh, a lot of money on his debt to his uh, sister, I believe, and some charitable organizations. And of course, when you think about it, if you know if this priest is so very charitable, why does he have so much money to leave to people on his debt? Right? It's kind of this uh, idea. It's it's firstly that the child has a very kind of childish idea of what being generous is. He doesn't really think about things true. But also it kind of introduces this theme of deception to the story, which is, I think, uh, also quite quite central. You know, there's this idea that things aren't quite as they seem. Uh, and I think it also plays into, yeah, when you look at the priest's books, right? So he's, he's three books, as you mentioned. One of them is uh, The Devout uh, Communicant, which is, you know, a religious text. And the other two are kind of adventure stories. And of those stories, it's the, it's the uh, Memoirs of Vidoch. I don't exactly know how to pronounce that, but uh, um, it's that's the one that's the most thumbed. That's the yellow pages. It's maybe been exposed to the light in the air more, or it's been it's been there for longer. So it's more core to the priest's uh, reading. Um, and so yeah, and then of course the story itself, as you say, it meant, it describes a a thief turned informer. So this idea of deception, uh, you know, that this this thief is going around with his former colleagues or perhaps uh, other thieves. Uh, uh, and informing on them, it's, it's you know there's there's deceptions at play in many levels in this story. I think it's an interesting one, all right. Certainly, and I, I think um, it 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 really it speaks to Joyce's ability as an author, and I suppose why you know more than a hundred years later, we're sitting here discussing this through a medium that I suppose if if we could talk metaphysically for a minute, you know, would would be meaningless, and 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 even the concept of a podcast would 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 just be beyond the, the, the concept or scope of, of, of someone's, uh, someone of the period's uh, understanding. You know, I think um, the other aspect of this, and, and um, I suppose one, one thing that, that, that ties back to, to some of the topics we talked about previously in terms of the idea of light is the darkness and there's a, an overbearing, there's certainly a sense, at least I, I, I get in, in reading the story, uh, a sense of the weight and dustiness and just oppression within the house that the the protagonist experiences as compared with any of the descriptions where he interacts with Mangan's sister. Um, I think there there's this moment where he is talking to her about the, 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 the Arabi, about the, uh, the bazaar and just the way she's described. Um, you, you, you just have this vision of a, a near heavenly individual sitting there bathed in light and um i think her hair is is described as kind of uh rope like falling around her and just this this beautiful very floral language described this woman as compared with i suppose the, the experiences that he has in both the house and interesting i think in the in in the school as well i think in in, in his initial description of the school he's he seems relatively happy there He's kind of talking about the, the the work he's doing and his relationship with the teacher. Whereas, after this encounter and after he has determined to go to the Arabi market, he first of all, d different to how it's presented in the other narratives, there's no direct quotes from it, the teachers in any of these sections. They're all a representation or a reflection of the protagonist's perception of what the teacher is thinking about him at the time, which I think is interesting. And that and and that's. I suppose you're seeing a development there of the cognitive dissonance that we were talking about at the top of the story where it's still presented in the eye, but it's now drifting into almost a narrator 
narrating the events of his own life as opposed to replaying them directly verbatim and quoting his uh, his teacher there. Yeah, I, I think that idea of uh, yeah the boy becoming more self-aware, you know, we saw hints of this in the, in the earlier story and encounter. Um, and as you say, it's kind of played out in how the how the, the story is actually related to us, that it's, it's not related directly, but rather at a, at a, at a distance here. Um, yeah, and I, I think the other thing you touched on there is, is the idea of light. Yeah, not to harp back on, on the house uh, metaphor again, uh, but the, the house is, is contrasted with the, uh, the street the boy plays on. And when he's out playing on the street, it says that we play till our bodies glowed, you know, so this idea that, you know, when he's out playing on the street, it's kind of um, invigorating, you know, uh, that his body is, is literally starting to glow versus when he's in the house, it's this very enervating, uh, you know, dark, depressing place. And yeah, I, I think the other thing you touched on there was his his depiction of um, of Mangan's sister, uh, which I think it's very interesting in terms of how Mangan's sister is described, what what it means uh, in terms of the boy's own uh, opinions and perspectives. Um, and I think I might actually read out the quote where he he describes that you that you mentioned there with the kind of the the light. Um, and so the quote is. I may have stood there for an hour, seeing nothing but the brown clad figure cast by my imagination, touched discreetly by the lamplight at the curved neck, at the hand upon the railings, and at the border below the dress. So you can see, I mean, there's, there's two kind of distinct things, or distinct images that are kind of brought up for me by that. One is the, the lamplight at the curved neck is, as you said, like a halo, like this kind of like you know, vision just appearing to him, uh, but also kind of has this very religious connotation, right? And it's like, a, you know, Mary or something. Um, but then at the end of that, you also have this, the border below the dress, which is this kind of, you know, this growth in the boy's sexuality. You know, if you're looking at the border below the dress, you're obviously thinking, you know, what's what's beneath it, right? And so, yeah, it's it's this kind of, again, the boy's idea of what love is, is this kind of, in some ways confused mixture of notions between the religious and then also the kind of the more um you know sexual uh, development his his sexual impulses and desires which are just you know he's only entering puberty now i believe so it's it's kind of still a confusing time absolutely no i think it's um again it's 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 interesting how all of the male protagonists in in, in joyce's stories here seem to be more sexually developed and more sexually sophisticated in the my most minor sense relative to their peer group so you've 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 got the um the distinction i suppose in in this first interaction between in the first direct interaction i suppose between the protagonist and and, and mangan's sister the uh, mangan and the boys i think it, it's it's referenced they're fighting over their cap or fighting over a cap and um yeah her brother and two other boys are fighting for their caps and i alone was at the railings um and this is this opportunity to speak to her so again you've got this idea of the other boys are focused on the, these kind of material things and they're, they're focused on fighting for the prizes of childhood trinkets and honors like this whereas he's this higher thinker who's desiring to try these new adult ideas like oh, courting a woman and court, courting a partner and, and these beautiful angelic images and, and, and the, the, the Madonna image I, I think is, is, is definitely meant to be 
uh, recognized here and, 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 and referenced here in, uh, in, in, in the description you, you, you quoted there earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, we don't see, I mean, you can imagine if the boys were all in the same sort of stage of puberty, you'd, you'd have this kind of like this jocular speak about the, about the Mangan sister or about, oh, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? Are you going to talk to her? But, you know, it's, it's very much the boy is isolated here. And, and as he becomes more invested in his, his love for her, uh, it, it isolates him more. I think you, you referenced earlier, there's this image where the, he's, firstly, he's isolated from his, his school, that he, he's not, no longer able to actively pay attention in class. And also there's another image where he's kind of like leaning his forehead against the window and looking out at the, at the boys playing on the street. But he can only like sit there and, and imagine her because it's, it's, at this point he's waiting to go to the bazaar and he's waiting for his uncle to return home. And so he's, he's isolated by, um, yeah, by his own puberty. Absolutely. It's, it's, a challenging, um, it's a challenging time. Yeah, one other thing to note in, um, in terms of how how Mangan's sister is described is um, we've talked up till now about how so many of the characters in Joyce's stories even if they're only kind of incidentally there like say the sisters in in in, in the uh, the first story the sisters uh, they're very well realized but I think Mangan's sister is somebody who isn't um, you know we're only giving given kind of very um, physical descriptions you know Lachlan you mentioned the, the toss of her hair or her braid and uh, you know, it's uh, we also hear maybe about her, her wrists, the bracelets on her wrists, and so it's very kind of like disembodied description where you're only given descriptions of parts of her physical anatomy, um, and even her name. You know, we never know her full name; we just know she's Mangan's sister. So, I mean, why does Joyce do this? Uh, I mean, I think the the obvious answer is that it's you know, it's it's tr he's trying to show us that you know what the boy sees is more of a projection of his own desires rather than the reality of, of who this girl is. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think this is, you know, this is, as I said, this idea that the boy is filled with these kind of uh, romantic notions kind of runs throughout the story. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, a, a bit about like how, how he perceives her. We haven't, I realize we haven't really talked about the market itself so much. Um, Lachlan, do you want to talk on, on that? Yeah, sure. So I mean, I, I think uh, the market. Yeah, as as we say, it's, it, it it in some way the market is the the titular character of the of the the story itself, and um, it's you know to 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 that point. I think there there are some fantastic descriptions of uh, of the market. It it's um, it's interesting how different characters seem to have different perceptions of 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 the market itself. So before we ever. Or before I suppose our protagonist gets to the market, I, I suppose we've had in the first instance Mangan's sister describing it as oh this wonderful beautiful idea. The the the, the protagonist himself doesn't seem to be aware of it. I'm not a hundred percent certain if he's even aware of the, the the market before it's brought up or referenced by by Mangan's sister, and and he says himself, you know, he's he's so distracted by her beauty and and, and so caught up in the moment of, of of actually talking to her for the first time that he he doesn't remember whether he said he was going or not, but. Uh, commits and and uh, commits to 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 picking her up something if, if if he makes it and i think even even that itself kind of she doesn't engage with him saying that or, or, or making that suggestion there's no there's no real interaction between these people the, the, these are essentially uh this is a moody teenage girl wistfully thinking about the market she can't go to because she's 
on a religious retreat with a convent versus this Arthurian hero who says, I'll solve my lady's problem and, 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 and go to this uh, this Arab market. Um, so obviously he, he asked permission from his uh, his aunt in the first instance and she says, it's uh, she describes it, it's not some Freemason affair, which I think is uh, an, an, an interesting idea that this um, othering or that this uh, differentiation between the, the, the market as a concept and kind of what good upstanding Catholic individuals in, in, in Ireland would have done. And I, I think at the time, Freemasonry, and still to a lesser extent today, is, is, is very much considered to be a, a more Protestant pursuit rather than uh, than Catholic. And there's there's an innate degree of suspicion, I think, for the family, at least for the aunt and uncle, with regard to to this. Um, I think similarly then you, you have uh, when he finally gets permission from his uncle and and and, and is uh, allowed to go to the market. The uh, the the uncle asks him, "Does he know the uh, the Arabs farewell to his steed?" And um, the the uncle is there sitting in the in the in the kitchen as as the boy is leaving. Just the you're left with this image of the uncle sitting there, starting to recite this poem to the to to the aunt. And there's a nice kind of juxtaposition there where you have our protagonist seeking out this market to woo, I suppose, ultimately Mangan's sister compared with then his aunt and uncle where they're they're happy in their domesticated life and simply the idea of the market and, and this oriental or this arabesque poem and narrative and these stories of these kind of different other people is enough to for, for the, the uncle to, to, I suppose, maintain the interest of his wife or to, to enjoy their, their, their company between each other. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a quite a funny scene as well. I think there's maybe a suggestion that the uncle might be be drunk, and that's why he's returned home so late. Um, you know, he, he um, the boy hears the uncle come home before he sees him, and he hears that the the hat stand is is rocking, uh, that the uncle is having some difficulty uh, putting his hat and coat away, and I think the line in the story is that I could interpret these signs so probably an, an indication that the uncle is, is maybe drunk. And you have then this image of the uncle trying to regale the boy with his, his knowledge of song. And, and, and he's also speaking in some other cliches like uh, all work and no play makes jacket to a boy. And so you've, you've got this uncle in a kind of an oratory mode, uh, just wants to like express and, and, and be merry. And, and meanwhile, the, the child is, you know, his, his soul is burning. He's just longs to get away and to get to this market. And so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's quite a funny image, kind of like this moment of, of, of levity in, in, a, in what's otherwise, you know, uh, I mean, becomes quite a dark story towards the end. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think, I think even there's, there's probably an inflection point in this in the story, and it, it, it's it's probably around that point after the boy leaves the house for the final time, and um, he's he hops on a train and travels to to the the, the bazaar, and um, you know I think the some of the passages if I can if I can read a quote here, um, just describing the uh, the, the the journey itself, uh, the sight of the streets thronged with buyers and glaring with gas recalled to me the purpose of my journey. I took my seat in a third-class carriage of a deserted train. After an intolerable delay, the train moved out of the station slowly. It crept onwards among ruinous houses and over the twinkling river. At Westland Road Station, a crowd of people pressed to the carriage doors, but the porters moved them back, saying it was a special train for the bazaar. I remained alone in the bare carriage. And there's just this horrifying, almost, almost, almost horrifying, I would say, image or idea of 
just this young boy on his own sitting in this bare third uh, third class carriage surrounded by uh, on on the one hand you know the the ruinous uh, the ruinous uh, houses and um on the other side the twinkling river this this kind of this idea of absence or this this degeneration of the city the, the, this this kind of idea of as a a shell or a husk of a, it's not a living thriving city and similarly the boy then on the carriage the passengers pushing to get on the porter's holding the back saying no oh, this is just for the bazaar and it kind of remains empty the idea of the, this hollowed out space where the boy despite being you know is, is, is going on this perilous journey alone um surrounded by people but not really interacting with any of them and you know, I, I, I think that's that's a beautiful image and it, it really helps convey this transition to a nearly otherworldly space. And uh, I do I do wonder if, if there is, and you know, I'm curious your thoughts on this, John, is the idea of the bazaar as a another worldly space or as a, a liminal space, I suppose, between the, the, the east and west or you know, the the, the normal conventional and, and the otherworldly. Yeah, I think I think the symbolism of the bazaar is is a very interesting question. The bazaar itself um, is based on a, on a real life bazaar, a real life uh, Oriental fate. I think it was called that uh, that took place in Dublin, uh, known as Araby, uh, and took place in eighteen ninety four. And uh, I believe Joyce also attended this event. Um, and there's a I have a actually there's a an advertisement flyer for for that um, for that bazaar that I can maybe quote some of some of the description it's quite long so i won't read it all but um araby 1894 a magnificent representation of an oriental city cairo donkeys and donkey boys an arab encampment international tug of war dances by 250 trained children eastern magic from the egyptian hall london and it goes on like that um and so yeah you get this this again this um kind of like an orientalist image, this kind of idea of the East as a uh, kind of like a mystical sort of a place. Um, you know, I think at the time in, in, in Dublin, and, and I think to this day, there is this kind of um, idea of, of uh, the, you know, the Middle East, North Africa, parts of East Asia as this sort of otherworldly um uh, location where the people are in some way different that they're you know there's um you know there there there's this magical connection but then also there's this kind of like uh deception there's this violence there's this wealth uh, gold and this these kind of ideas um that uh yeah that there's this opposition between east and west which i think you hinted at um and of course you know this has also political ramifications as uh, edward Sa said uh, discusses in in his essay orientalism that it's often used to um to in some way uh, forward some sort of political narrative in the west and maybe they want to uh, control the east in some ways um and i i mean i don't want to imply that that joyce is is, is preempting this sort of thing um i think joyce is much more concerned with uh, irishness and anity of irishness um and i think you know if we look at maybe joyce's relation to say um the Irish literary revival or the Gaelic revival, you see some similar themes emerging there in terms of what, um, you know, what people from those movements uh, wanted to evoke. They wanted to invoke this kind of ancient Ireland, uh, this kind of like mystical Ireland, uh, this kind of wild Ireland. 
And so you can kind of see that there's some similarly, similar ideas there between uh, how the East is evoked or how the, the Arabi is evoked and how members of that movement want to evoke... Um, Celtic mysticism. Yeah, Celtic mysticism, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think this is something that, that Joyce is very um, yeah, suspicious of. No, I, I, I think you're right. And, and you know, I, I think um, in some ways, I think Joyce maybe is not, I, I, I think you're correct in that culturally and socially at the time that this was written, there was a burgeoning recognition of Orientalism as a, not quite a flawed or problematic concept as I, as, as I think we, we probably describe it today in the modern day, but certainly a recognition that it's, somewhat artificial and I think you know you, you see this in, in in kind of other literary movements I think there's uh, several of Co Arthur Conan Doyle's um, Sherlock narratives revolve around these what initially appear to be oriental uh, villains who ultimately are regular British people who are taking on this mantle to defraud or to to in some way trick local people similarly you've got um, Fu Manchu and, 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 and I suppose the, the, the prototypical kind of Asian doctor with the the, the, the incredibly kind of racist uh, portrayal with the, the long, uh, thin moustache. And I think, t in, in some ways, I think Joyce is, is, is toying or playing with this idea in, in some of the uh, the descriptions of um, of Araby, and, and, and not even necessarily the descriptions so much as the reality and the disconnect between the expectations of the, the boy and the descriptions per the, the flyer that you, just, you, you read out there with the reality of what what the boy is encountering um you know i I, th I think we mentioned already the the only characters i suppose we directly interact with in the in the bazaar itself are all, all english themselves so despite all these great oriental illusions and, and and ideas of of this completely othered space it ultimately boils down to it's 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 just people that you recognize and are aware of and know as they're english we speak english this is a this is not quite as, as, as exotic and foreign as, as uh, initially thought. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's the beginning of this uh, breakdown or, or, or this challenge that the, that the young man faces as he, you know, has transitioned into, into the market. And, and, and I, I know you, you want to talk about the, uh, the idea of money. And, um, you know, maybe this is a good point to, to talk about the, how, how the money works in, 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 this, uh, in this story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose maybe a brief diversion to to discuss the denominations of the money because it's it's you know it's a pre-decimal coinage. Um, Twelve pennies would make a shilling, and twenty shillings would make a pound. Uh, the boy in the story is given a, a florin coin, which is uh, two shillings or, or twenty-four pennies, um, and he spends half of it to enter the bazaar. So it's it's a lot of money he's he's giving away just to enter this bazaar. Um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, we've talked about the, the kind of the sell of the bazaar, this kind of idea of, of Eastern enchantment or this kind of Eastern mysticism. Um, but of course, it all ultimately comes down to a very kind of uh, financial um, exchange. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a nice quote for this one, actually. I suspect you're, you're gearing up to it yourself, but uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so the, the, the quote is before, before a curtain over which the words Café Chanton were written in coloured lamps, two men were counting money on a salver. I listened to the fall of the coins. Uh, and then the next paragraph starts with, uh, remembering with difficulty why I'd come, I went over to one of the stalls and examined porcelain vases and flower tea sets. And I think that in that quote, just the, 
this is, uh, you know, the boy's arrived in the hall and he's looking around and all he can see is this, you know, beautiful French sounding cafe, Cafe Chantant, uh, written in this coloured lamps and, and all that's there are two men dropping money into a tray and just counting out their, counting out their coins. And, and, and I think there's that, that, that for me is probably the, another one of these inflection points where the boy starts to realise that this is a monetarily or a financially driven pursuit. It's not a true exploration or, or, or you know, a, a valid idea of a, of a market or, or a real adventure for him. There, there, there's a gritty reality of, of, of money in, in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, as you say, that, that this money, it immediately prefigures or is, is the sentence just before the main epiphany of the story, you know, so it's, it's quite clearly closely connected. Um, I think the other maybe allusion there is, is, is just before that as well, Joyce uh, links the, uh, the, the bazaar itself with, it, with a church. She says that, uh, I recognise a silence like that which pervades a church after a service. So, you know, the boy has arrived to the bazaar and it's already shutting down and, and the, the upper lights are, are switching off. And so the silence he feels is, is, is like a church. And so, I mean, you would imagine that a, the silence in the bazaar wouldn't resemble, you know, a religious service. But I guess this again is, is Joyce connecting, you know, the, the monetary concerns with the, with the religious concerns. And again, this kind of theme of, of deception, um, of, you know, things that are portrayed as, as being one thing, ultimately being about something else. Um, and then, yeah, when we link that in then to the, um, to the men counting coins on, on a salver, we maybe evokes the image of, of Jesus and the, and the money changers in the, in the temple, uh, where, where Jesus, you know, um, you know, freaks out or, or maybe freaks out is the wrong phrase, but, uh, you know, he overturns their tables and tells them to get out of the temple. Um, you know, no such, uh, action occurs here for the boy, just as in, in a counter, there's no such you know, a hero moment. It's just, he has this quiet realization about something in himself and about the nature of the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think the word you were possibly looking for there is simony. Um, the one of, again, one of the three words that we have uh, highlighted or italicized at the, in the, in the beginning of the sisters, which, um, you know, I think Joyce said were, could be used as a guide to, to the rest of the story. So this, again, the idea of tying religiousness and money into it to, together it, it, it is again a theme that we just see emerging here very very subtly but 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 very distinctly and definitively you know a, a huge portion of the text is, is 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 dedicated to this idea of um a financial and religious kind of intertwining and and, and mishmash of, of two concepts there if i can jump off that something we kind of uh, skipped over as well is um you know, while the boy is waiting for his father to return home, there's there's another character in the story, a Miss Mercer, who is a, uh, you know, she's a little a little like Mister Cotter in, in the Sisters, where she's there and she's talking, and the boy is just frustrated or bored with her. And um, but his description of her is, um, you know, she's she's described as being the pawnbroker's widow, so you know she's making her money, um, kind of out of out of other people's misery to some regard, or other people who are in poverty and need to sell their their goods. Um, and so she's making her money that way, but she's at the same time collecting stamps for some pious purpose. Um, so, you know, again, she's kind of like this, this air or this front of, of religiousness or of, of, um, yeah, of being something that, uh, doesn't quite, um, um, bear true in reality that the, the reality of things isn't quite the same. So I think, um, you know, I, th I think it's probably time we, we, we've danced around it for a while, but is, is it time to dive into the, the, the final denouement of the, of the story and, and to, to really kind of uh, 
bring all bring all these disparate elements together. I don't know, John. Do you want to do you want to do the honors of the the denouement phrase? At least I know what I think it is, but uh, curious to curious to hear what you think. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe to kick off, I'll just I'll read the the quote. It's uh, gazing up into the darkness. I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. So yeah, if I if I give a, a preliminary interpretation of that before Lachlan uh, tells me what it's really about, uh, I think he yeah he kind of realizes. I mean, so he's on this this quest kind of as we alluded to, you know, this kind of like Grail quest to you know to win the heart of of Mangan's sister, uh, and he realizes not only that he's failed in this quest at this moment, you know, the lights are going off and he's not going to be able to buy anything for her, uh, so he's failed in his quest. But he also realizes, I think, that the quest. Uh, in, in in itself was foolish to begin with. That that that's it. Like I think it's it's it is that denouement moment. It is that gut punch moment. As I as I insist on describing it in every episode, where you kind of realize is he. It, in some ways, it's interesting because he steps outside of himself, and you know, as he says, gazing you know gazing up into the darkness. I saw myself, and he's having this kind of outer body experience, looking down on himself. And, and he describes himself as a creature. It's no longer a, a human being driven and derided by vanity. So I think he's he has realized what his mission was here, what he was ultimately doing. And this is horrible. Uh, it, it, in some ways, it's interesting because I think in remembering the story, I always have in my head this idea of him. You know, I, you know, you recall the whole story. He's, he's interested in the sister, goes to the, the market. It doesn't work out for him. And you're always like, well, how did that end again, though? Does he go home, and is it really depressing? And is he sitting on the and it's, it, it doesn't need any of that. The um, as as you alluded to, the throughout his arrival or from his arrival, he he kind of references the lights in the upper part of the hall are going dim. And uh, I think there's there's just one 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 sentence or two sentences that I'll read out here. That then I turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar. I allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket. I heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out. The upper part of the hall was now completely dark. And I think that that is a beautiful little section just to just a couple of the sentences that just tie a huge amount of the story all together in one beautiful piece. You've got the the sound of the money falling in its pockets. So he's, you know, he's kind of remembering to himself. He's got this disembodied voice just shouting down. He doesn't even know what it's saying. And he's just watching as all the lights go out around him and he's just forced to sit there reckoning with his own vanity it's, you know and, and and the horrible moment is he realizes it we have you know you, you have this huge drive of empathy for this boy as he sits there recognizing his own folly and his eyes burned with anguish and anger you know you can really feel that passion that sense of not quite self-destruction or self-immolation but just the it's 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 just a beautifully kind of depressing um, an appropriately depressing ending and you know to to my mind at least what 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 I really enjoy about or what 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 resonates for me so heavily with with this particular story is that depressing is that that sadness that that recognition that your life's goal the thing you were working towards what you were hoping for is meaningless folly and that you are growing up as an adult and the reality of adulthood is that you're childish stories of knights and achieving your goals boil down to standing on your own in the middle of a, a darkened hallway with coins clinking in your pocket you've spent all this money to achieve nothing and i, I think you know that there's there's definitely a, a point there as well the idea of the pennies 
dancing in his pocket versus the single florin that he had had when he started out on this journey. And it's, 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 to me, it's, it's a beautiful moment. And it really kind of just captures that depression and the, the challenge and the, the grimness of life, I suppose, in, for human beings as they hit puberty, essentially. <laughs> Your first great love lost. Yeah, I think it's, it's possibly the most crushing moment in, in the collection. You know, there's, there's other moments that are more consequential in the characters' lives. Like, I mean, maybe we'll be talking about Evelyn shortly or, or where, you know, the, the epiphany at the end of that has, a, has perhaps a larger consequence for her life. But in terms of pure emotional impact, it's, uh, it's really, uh, yeah, one of the most powerful moments, I think, in the collection. Um, I think I might uh, maybe draw some 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 line line of difference with you in, in terms of uh, is how much is Joyce saying that uh, this is the realization that uh, adult life is is different from um, you know your childish notions and how much of it is also him saying um, you know that this is adult life in Dublin at this time that that Dublin at this time is. Uh, you know, a machine that crushes dreams, so to say. You know, when we look at some of the characters, say, in A, in a Little Cloud, this character has these dreams, these aspirations, but, um, you know, it ends up living quite a, quite a small life. Uh, and so, yes, I think that, of course, childish notions uh, are, are um, do go away in some extent into adulthood, but I also think that... Okay, so maybe maybe the romantic notion of love that the the boy has isn't quite reality, but also even even a more a more uh, gentle or less ostentatious idea of love is in some ways defeated by the city. Yeah, no, that's 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 an interesting uh, an interesting read on it, and certainly, I mean, I think Joyce is not kind to Dublin. I don't, you know, I, I don't think anyone is uh, listening back to or read, reading any of these stories and thinking Dublin is a. It's a great place to live, and it's uh, you know absolutely a pinnacle of uh, achievement and a city you'd want to live in. It's um, the the paralysis is uh, something, and I, th- I think uh, you know even an extension of that, the paralysis has, has led to rot. And I mean, I, I I I don't disagree with you. I think absolutely you see throughout um, the collection the idea of the city is reflected in these these kind of ugly phrases it's it's kind of described but not even it's 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 almost rotting like it's 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 a fallen tree and just bits and pieces there's broken windows everywhere the ruinous houses we referenced earlier and or, or, or earlier as well even i think as he's sitting in the room the drawing room where the priest died the windows in that room are described as being broken and he just kind of sits next to them these these kind of broken down decaying city i, I suppose and and is that rot spreading to the the occupants of the city, and everyone is I- I trapped in this, paralyzed, as it were, by by this this terrifying rot and this this idea? And I think that's um, that's that, that that that's part of, I suppose, the, in in some ways, the beauty of the collection itself and a grim reflection. And but it, I think it's why the book has endured in popularity, and and and, and why we're doing this podcast again if I can reference ourselves metaphysically you know like why, why 100 odd years later you know we're sitting here still or at least I'm still living in Dublin and, and, and thinking about uh, you know what this book means and, and, and what the city represents uh, now as, as, as compared to, to back then yeah absolutely and I think uh, 
you know, as we said, this is one of the stories that does resonate down through the years. As I mentioned, it's, it's you know, often anthologized. Um, you know, this moment of, of disappointment in, in romantic pursuits. We have, if we make a very contemporary reference, you know, people like incels on the internet who are, you know, get rejected in their romantic encounters. And so how they react to that is, has uh, big implications for, for how their life turns out. And so, yeah, this, this story is, is it's, it's very specific to Dublin in a time and a place, but the, the ideas in it obviously have um, yeah, broad, um, broad appeal. Um, I think that's about it then for, for this story. Uh, I've had the last word the last few episodes. Do you want to tie us up today, Lachlan? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think this, as, as we've said, this is a fascinating story. It really represents a, I, I, I think we've agreed, it, it represents a, a turning point or a pivot from the childhood segment or, or, or portion of the, of the collection into the, the, the adolescence portion. And, you know, I, I think this, this, this ties quite nicely with, or, or parallels quite neatly with the next story that we're going to be talking about in the next episode, Evelyn. And uh, I have to admit, Evelyn is, 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 is one of my favorite stories, but uh, Araby is, is certainly a, is certainly up on, on, on the list as well. I'm, I'm not sure if I can commit to, to either one as my absolute favorite from the collection, but, uh, you know they're, they're they're both uh they're both very strong and you know look i think it's 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 going to be an exciting time ahead as we transition away from the, the idea of childhood and these kind of protagonist narrators into more of an omniscient observational perspective on the city with more fully fleshed out characters and you know i think i think one one parting thought of if you're reading the the, the stories along with us as we as we do each podcast you know look out for in the next story more nuanced characters, the depth of analysis and I suppose the interrogation that each of the characters will bring in the in the following stories is much more sophisticated and I think to an extent Joyce writes and I think that's the the, the, the mirroring I suppose between the narrative structure itself and the the narrative, the, the idea that Joyce in the early stories writes almost in a childlike manner. To reflect the, the childhood um, nature of the protagonists, and as we move into adolescence, there's that kind of almost what we'd now call kind of an emo phase type, uh, you know, hyper introspection and hyper focus on on oneself without really understanding what one's drives or motivations are, and I, I think that's something to to look forward to. But um, you know, as we say for. For now, I think that's it. So, um, you know, look, thank you very much for listening. We've been the Dubliners by Dubliners, and uh, we'll talk to you in the next episode. Thanks very much. Bye.